right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fuck, Nicks? What's happening? I'm Mark Marin. This is my podcast, broadcasting from a hotel room in Portland, Oregon, where I've been for a few days. How are you guys doing? I love Portland. You know, I was concerned the last time I was here. I, I couldn't get a sense of how the city was doing necessarily. I'm not sure I would know one way or the other, but I, it felt a little... I don't know, it maybe it was during COVID or just post-COVID. It was just, uh, I guess everything was scary, but I certainly like being here. I, I like um, the food thing. This place is just, Portland is, it seems to be just progressive politics and unbounded culinary experimentation built on a very solid foundation of uh, ancient darkness. I don't know what it is, and I've said this before, I just don't. There's something about the climate, about the foliage, about the weight of this city. There's a history to it that I don't quite know or understand, but it seems fundamentally American and fundamentally from like the 1800s. And just there's some, and I always talk about this, there's not, it's not a menace. It's just a, a, a frequency of, of mystery and slight darkness to it. And I feel like everything that's happening culturally here is just in balance with that, that it's a delicate balance. I feel like at any time, the ancient darkness could be awakened and engulf the city. Am I being dramatic? Am I being poetic? What am I, what am I even trying to say? I, it just, it connects with me. It connects with me. Do you know where I'm going to be? Do you know where I, if I'm going to be in your town? I don't know. I don't have that many road dates coming up throughout the uh, end of the year, but I will be in Boston at the TD Garden for Comics Come Home on Saturday, November 4th. I'll be in Denver, Colorado uh, at the Comedy Works South for four shows, November 17th and 18th, and Los Angeles. A lot of dates in Los Angeles. I'm at Dynasty Typewriter on December 1st, 13th, and 28th. I'm at the Elysian on December 6th, 15th, 22nd, and Largo again on December 12th and January 9th. You can go to wtfpod.com slash tour for tickets to all those things. And hopefully by the time I tour, the dates, the theater dates I'm going to do in the new year, I, I will be tight, refined. My hour plus will be solid. It's been pretty fun. It's a strange thing that happens to me when I'm doing club work because I believe that to see comedy in a comedy club is where it really happens. That's where the connection between an audience and a performer is really kind of uh, electric because you can kind of do the one mind thing. You're not just on stage presenting your act and then waiting for laughs. It just becomes this other engaged thing. And this club has been great. I'd like to thank Helium Comedy Club uh, personally for adjusting their method of paying tabs so I wouldn't have to deal with a random bunch of digital beeps from point of sale machines during the last 20 minutes of my set. There's been none of that. They're doing it old school, taking the credit cards out to the bar. Hopefully they'll get that technology fixed so uh, it can just run normally. But man, I was nervous about that, but that hasn't been a problem. But the shows, the shows are, are, are wild because when I do two shows a night, you know, I'll do the first show and then the second show. I, I don't ever do the same exact show twice. But the second show, I don't want to drift into 
I don't know how to autopilot. There's no, it's not the way that my, my brain works. It's not, I can't do my jokes like that because they're not structured that way. So I end up trying to engage in the moment in like last night, well, it would be Saturday night's second show. It was just 40 minutes of, you know, riffing and old stories and trying to figure out how to stay in that present, which I think is why I've designed my life the way that I've designed my life. It seems that between comedy and talking to people on this show, you know, I am forced into the present uh, through engagement with other people. And I think that's the kind of one of the great nourishing necessities that uh, some people forget to do, or they're not in the situation where they can do it. Engaging, same airness, baby, the same airness is where it's at today in terms of engaging i talked to uh to joan baez now look this is one of those interviews where you've got such a huge life a life that spans decades and decades and just an important figure culturally musically uh and in in terms of activism and it, it is not somebody that i grew up with because i'm i'm not i'm a tail end boomer I, I did not come up in the 60s, certainly have a tremendous reverence for all the music and all the things that happened in the 60s, but I didn't live it. Like I've listened to Joan Baez records, but it was not totally connected with me. I, like I couldn't reel off uh, her songs, but I always knew who she was and I have a lot of the records on vinyl. But there's this new documentary out about her. It's called Joan Baez, I Am A Noise. Now, when I got the opportunity to interview her, I was like, of course, I'll interview her, but I'm going to have to immerse myself in Joan Baez. So I watched the documentary, and what was interesting, and this happens too when I talk to people, and maybe you've experienced it as well, and certainly as we get older, things that we may not have been able to connect with, we are able to connect with now, or as years go by, as you know, you keep trying or you keep reconnecting, or, or all of a sudden, out of nowhere, someone's art reveals itself to you in a way that you couldn't quite grasp before. But there was something kind of amazing about watching the documentary and really getting to know her, Joan, as a person. Because a lot of these people are so mythic. Uh, they, they, they occupy a different space in our minds. You know, I don't know her as a person. I don't know a lot of the people I talk to as people. I know their output. I know their reputation. I know the work that, uh, that defines them culturally. But you, don't, you can't necessarily connect with them as people. I'm not saying they're not authentic, but you just don't know. So I watched the, the doc, and I was able to go back to her first records and have a different experience with the full arc of her career because you sort of go through a timeline in the doc and she's talking a lot and she's talking about what she's gone through and some of the trauma she's experienced, but just getting to know her as a person and then going back and listening to even the first records and then the mid period records and, and the newest or the last record, there's a fullness to it that I, I couldn't have, I couldn't have gleaned from just listening to her without knowing about her all the music came to life in a, in a very kind of authentic way. So it was a, a pretty great experience. So I spent a lot of time with Joan Baez's music leading up to the conversation that uh, you'll hear today. And it was a, an honor and I was nervous about it because she's talked about her life. A lot of people ask her the same questions. And I'll just tell you this as, 
as somebody who talks to people that that have a public narrative as much as I do, that one of the tricks is is that I know what people want it what they always ask her. They always ask her about Bob Dylan. They always ask her about Martin Luther King. So how do I sort of sideline that a little bit to kind of get another place with her? And ultimately what happened was she was so kind of, uh, you know, straightforward that we just ended up having a good time. And sometimes despite whatever information I may get from a guest that just being in the same room with them, and having that back and forth, that kind of symbiotic engagement of conversation and knowing that she was having a pretty good time. And for me, uh, that's what I come away from this uh, interview with is that I know that Joan had fun and she told me so after we finished. She's just, uh, she was great. It was, it's so exciting. And I, I can't stress this enough in terms of what I do to actually get to know these people as much as I can in the hour or plus hour or so time that I get to spend with, they just become just people. The myths are brought down from on high, you know, in the cultural imagination, in my imagination, just down to my level, which is just a guy in a, in a renovated garage talking on a couple of microphones. And it was really, it was fun. We had some laughs. She told a couple of funny stories and, uh, and I just uh, was very charmed by the whole thing. I've had this thing on my mind. You know, I've heard people be critical, and, you know, and I've made fun probably in the past myself. I still see people out in the world, on the street, outdoors, wearing masks. Or in, in big areas where uh, you, it's probably not that much of a threat, wearing masks. And, and, and I don't know what it is about people that are like, what the fuck are they doing? Why are they doing that? I remember primarily Asian people, even long before COVID, wearing masks, and it was a little disconcerting. But the truth is, who cares? Why is it your problem? If someone's wearing a mask outside because that's their choice that makes them feel safe, a lot of people do a lot of things to make themselves feel safe. You have certain types of boots, maybe certain types of underwear, maybe a hat. There's a million things that people do either superstitiously or not so superstitiously to make themselves feel safe or more comfortable in whatever their life is, whether it's outdoors or indoors. And it's like, you know, just shut the fuck up. If people want to wear their masks, it's just part of life now. Whether you believe that they need to or not, if it makes that person feel comfortable, so be it. Relax. It's not your problem. Just let people be. Why can't people just let fucking people be? Isn't that what that used to, it, wasn't that the whole idea of this place? To live the life you want to live, to make the choices you want to make if they're within the law and, and uh, within the understanding of how society works. I mean, Jesus, can't people mind their own fucking business? Anyway, enough. Let's, uh, let's share. Let me share with you now uh, this conversation I have with Joan Baez. As I said earlier, there's a documentary out. It's called Joan Baez, I Am a Noise. Go to joanbaezdocumentary.com to find out where it's playing near you. And now uh, you can uh, sit back or lay back or walk or whatever you're doing and enjoy my conversation with the amazing Joan Baez.
Are you, are you tired of talking about yourself yet? Never. Okay. <laughs> Never. It's it's ongoing. It's ongoing since birth. Well, it's it's funny because you know I the last three days I get nervous before I talk to people, mm. you know, and I watch the film, and then uh, you know I, I just I started at uh, the first album. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> did you really? I did, because like you know I've heard uh, most of them before, but after seeing the movie, and then. You know, hearing your reflections on these different periods in time and then going back to those records, it's different because before I saw the movie, I don't know that I really knew you. Right. So so now I know you and I'm like, oh, this was that album. It was a rough time for her. She, (laughs) she, She talked about it. Yeah. But but what I was thinking is that from the beginning, you know, given like I don't know how you're handling, you know, the reveal in the movie. I would hate to consider what you know what comes up in in the last third of the movie about your trauma as a spoiler mm-hmm. you, you know yeah we don't spoil it uh, <laughs> you don't. somebody said the other day well what do you do if somebody asks you directly yeah. about blah 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 and i said oh i i answer indirectly but yeah really so you're considering yeah. that that you want you, you i want just to... don't want to be trite and uh, oh, you right. know and overstated and so in the film it yeah. goes as far as i go to speaking about it not the same. Yeah. Right. We wanted to make a film that I would call Honest Legacy. Yeah. And we wanted to include as much as we possibly could right. on every level and wanted to find a way that that traumatic stuff doesn't overshadow everything. Oh, so that's why you kind of waited. You kind of you kind of talked alluded to it. Yeah, I think that's I think it's clever. I mean, the film yeah, was sure. made in a very clever way. Yeah. And that's part of it, the breadcrumbs, you know. Yeah. Um, and and because I was wondering about that, because like you know, you kind of start alluding to it early on in the movie. I'm like, yeah. oh, what happened? Yeah, yeah. Um, no, it's a it's a clever piece of work. And yeah. It's also how we got there was starting off to do a film about the last tour. You know, even if it wasn't going to be the last one. Yeah. It's what do I do with myself next kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. So, um, and then at a certain point. I gave him the key to the storeroom. I'd never been in there. Yeah, what is that store? I thought like this is interesting. She's got a a, a, a museum uh, ready yeah. to happen, but it was it's literally it looks like a vault. It it is or, a vault, and when I think you know, and Karen gave literally, I said, okay, do it. I mean, and I knew I wouldn't have any say. You you that was the first time you've been in that place. I had never been in it before. Who, well, who was managing it? A commercial place. No, but I mean, who was putting the stuff in oh, there? Oh, okay. Um, well, first of all, my mom's stuff saved everything. Yeah. She saved all of the letters, all the little tapes, all the pictures. That you gave to her? That I sent them. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then my dad saved everything. You know, he was a camera buff yeah. when he was 10. Right. You know, so yeah. by the time we came around, he was well into it in eight millimeters. And, okay. You know, and Polaroids yeah. and yeah. all that stuff. So he had saved that. Yeah. And then all the the tapes, yeah, the singing tapes, the yeah. therapy tapes, and all of that. The therapy tapes. Now, where did how, who was recording your therapy sessions? My therapist. That's... Oh no, I did. Oh, I okay. did. Yeah, 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 yeah. So you could listen later, or... so yeah, so I could see what the hell happened during that session. Sure. You know? Yeah, yeah, because you're in a sort of like a, you can get into a zone. That is correct. Yeah. So it was all in there, and you just do you feel like uh, part of the revelation? Do you like was that something you were trying to keep away from yourself? No, 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 it's something I want to keep away from the public. I never oh. talked about it. Never talked about it. But I mean, the the storage space itself. Oh, the storage space. Did itself. that represent a past that you? No, it just represented. <laughs> I didn't want to have to deal with the. Literally, <laughs> let me tell you something, Mark. Yeah, I yeah. thought a storage unit was somewhere you put your lampshades. Sure. 
and old bureaus. Oh no! For the yeah, not no. at all. No, so. you can, the people put everything in there. Apparently, and it's very daunting. You can. Just, are you going to? Why don't you have an archivist go in there? Um, first of all, they wouldn't want to hear the stuff <laughs> any more than we did. No, in the but, film. but don't you want the? Oh no, no, we have old... we have an archivist doing yeah. different sections, the different parts of it. Mm-hmm. Are you going to give it to a co- an institution? Um, you know what? I don't really care. Sure. My assistant cares. I yeah. said, you know what? Chances are with global warming, we're not going to be here long enough, long enough for somebody to consider an archive. I know. When people keep seeing, you know when people say on the news or anywhere, it's like, well, history will see. It's like, I don't know there if is, history. There's not going to be history. I mean, what's the matter with people? I don't I don't know. I don't know what's the matter with them. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I, I don't know that knowing is any better. No, so, you, it's it's um it's a balancing act for me. Yeah, denial is your friend. Sure, because it keeps you from just falling off the cliff, from screaming and crying all day. Exactly, screaming yeah. and crying. So, and then for a period of time, you have to translate screaming and crying into some kind of positive right? activity, sure. some kind of you know. And I talk about it when it, when a kid says, "Well, what can I do?" Yeah, and I think. A lot of things. We're just not going to have the big movement at the moment that makes us feel as though, hey, you know, we really can do this together. That doesn't exist right now. It doesn't. Does he think it exists anymore? I mean, what has to happen? Um, I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't know the answer to that because we never could have dreamed up this scenario. Well, I well, people were speculating. You know, I mean, it, yeah. yeah, I guess we couldn't have dreamed it up. But I like when you were younger, it did seem that you were part of. Uh, an activist youth that actually facilitated change. That's correct. That's, and, and that's, and yeah. Because there was uh, fewer TV ch- stations and that's, no phones. That's part of it. And, and music it. was a smaller business in a way. And, and also music, but whether it was coincidental or not, it was a 10-year period of unbelievable talent. That's right, right. And, yeah. and people are waiting for that to happen again, and it probably won't. So we have to create whatever's going to happen in that or in would we space. even recognize it? Would we know it? I mean, I, there's probably some talented people there in different of, pockets. There are talented people doing talented things. They, they, from what I hear, who get known at a certain level, yeah, um, are willing to talk about certain things. Yeah, but they're you know not really. I don't think interested in taking risks. Um, dealing with civil disobedience, all stuff you really have to do yeah. to make social change. It's not going to happen. And also the, the the sort of the bad guys, the right, the fascists have now appropriated all the language of the left. Yeah. Listen, <laughs> there is a book by George Lakoff. Yeah, I know that book. Yeah, okay. Don't think of an elephant. Yes. You know, the right knows how to talk. We don't. Yeah. I mean— because we're trying heart. to we're trying to get everyone to agree. We're trying to get a point across. So <laughs> yeah. that's like like fifteen minutes of blather. Nobody will remember, mm. and this jackass says, yeah. "Build a wall, yeah. lock her up, boom, and it's yeah. done." He doesn't have to talk. It's anymore. easy. We can repeat it over mm-hmm. and over again. It's mm-hmm. a chant. Well, like when I, I was watching the movie, and I was thinking, like, you know, given your childhood and, and some of the things you were dealing with that were nebulous. Like, uh, I mean, you kind of allude to the idea that, that you knew you had psychological issues early, right. right? That there was some sort of talk about, you know, drifting into different personalities. Well, early on, I mean, I'd never seen those letters either. We think Joni has some, you know, psychological problems. Yeah. And I'd never seen. Really? They didn't tell you? Mm-mm. I mean, I knew I had some problems. Yeah. I didn't know anybody had written you know yeah, that about to the, your them. parents. I mean, the movie is a learning experience for me. Yeah, I had no idea the extent, for instance, that my son 
had suffered. I mean, I knew he had, and we've been very smart and talked and been to therapists and referees and reached a level that has transformed in, our lives. In terms of growing up with, with you as yeah. a mother and, and yeah. You know, his, yeah. And just sitting on top of that little rock saying, but mom was out trying to save the world. And you see this little kid sitting there oh, in his little yeah. puffy jacket. So for me, it's a ugh, gut punch. Yeah. And what do I do next to yeah. deal with it? You know, same with the sisters in a way, not as profoundly painful, but they never said that stuff to me. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, and the, 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 the sort of ego and, and sort of, competition between you and Mimi, Mimi yeah. was like, it's brutal. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> but when you were a kid, like the, the idea that you would, because like, I'm trying to figure out like it, it just because of the way my brain works. I don't know if your brain works is that it seems to me that the music you gravitated towards early on, which defines you was incredibly sad music. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was. And the <laughs> interviewers when I was like, 22 or something. Yeah. Why are you singing all those sad ballads? Yeah. Well, I didn't know. <laughs> you know, I didn't know. But they were probably keeping you sane. They, thank you very much. They were the, playing the guitar and finding a way to interact with people, which was by covering my face with my hair and having a guitar between me and the people. Yeah. You know, I, I was making my safe zone. I'm yeah. Sure. And also the tone of that music there, like I've noticed it recently just in dealing with grief that, you know, there there is a, 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 a frequency of music that that will enable you to hold that sadness. I mean, it's not just the blues, but a lot of the folk ballads and a lot of the struggle music right. was a way to rise above <laughs> sadness. Sure. Yeah. And, and like, I have to assume, do you, that that was why it was so compelling? I don't. You don't think? You know, I mean, I'm thinking when we look back and yeah. it was more trouble than I knew in my childhood. I didn't you know I didn't know that. So it's reflecting that, I'm sure. But it's also, as you're suggesting, keeping me alive, yeah. keeping me going. That there was, uh, it was both. And as fame came along, there was both. There yeah. were both things. There was stage fright and freak out before I went on stage. But then afterwards, it was, um, I, I was some identity, and people appreciated me, and I started to find, you know, find my footing. Yeah, so. but when you look uh, in, in the childhood thing, like when you were doing drawings and you're trying to sort of, do you, you were disassociating, right? Um, doesn't level? it buy, but everybody does to some yeah. level. I mean, it's come day daydream is at one end sure. of the spectrum. Yeah. And, you and, know, and other personalities the is the other, <laughs> the other end of the spectrum. Um, you know, there are other ends of that spectrum. Yeah. And one of the things about the film that's been yeah. really, really, really gratifying and I wasn't counting on, I didn't do it for this purpose, but that all of the traumas that people have. Somehow or other, so far, this film has given them um, a way, a lot of them, a way to talk about it the way they had not been able to. I mean, moms have said that. The yeah. kids have said that. She, you know, one kid, my mom hasn't been able to deal with this stuff. And now she, you know, she finds a way. So that, to me, is some kind of icing on the cake that, that I can do that. Of course. And, and But it seems to me like... Because I'm I'm sort of the same way. I've started talking about like some trauma that I you know it, that I, I kind of knew in my brain, but there is sort of a spectrum of how we prioritize trauma emotionally. I mean, some of it you obviously survive with, and you may not know the impact until later, but you also don't want to live, you know, in relation to it. As don't want to identify as a big problem. Or yeah, or or or, or see yourself as a victim. Exactly. Mm. Exactly. One of the poems it says I wanted to. Um, 
transcend survival. Yeah. You know, I, I, I don't want to be in that. But I mean, I have. Uh, somebody asked the other night, well, it's in the film. What's yeah. the best decade of your life? And it, no question, it's right now. Is it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And then I thought for years that the word happy, you know, somebody asked the other night, well, where is it now? How do you feel now? I thought. I waited a second. To, I said, I guess I'm happy. Yeah? What the fuck? Yeah. <laughs> I know, didn't think that would happen to me. I, I'm the same way. I'm like, what is all this talk about happiness? <laughs> <laughs> Try it out, you know. <laughs> what do you got to do? Let it all go? Uh, you know, there's a thing about forgiveness. One of my Buddhist friends says you can forgive a little bit and feel a little bit better or forgive a lot, feel a lot better. Or you can forgive everything and be free. Huh. Isn't that a bitch? <laughs> yeah. yeah. But I mean, but the act of forgiveness, you know, on, on in, in, you know, in the full spectrum of, of transgressions mm-hmm. uh, that, uh, that you're uh, mad about or hurt about, I mean, you, you know, to really forgive, it's not a mental activity, right? Well, somebody asked also in one of the Q&As, how do you, how do you forgive? And I said a little bit at a time. It's that thinking we have to just have forgiven, boom, and not, not necessarily that simple at all. Yeah. Yeah, yeah because you, you've got to let it go. <laughs> and that's, right? And that's hard, yeah. And, and so if you have a certain type of brain, you know, you kind of want to go back to those resentments yep. just to have a little fuck you and you. Yep. <laughs> sure. <laughs> and they, the more you're able to let go of the fuck you— the freer you are, in my yeah. in my experience, I think that's true, and I think that it, I, I I think age helps with that. Yes, it does. Because if you want to be a, a fuck you old person, <laughs> you're going to look like one. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, I, I know a few. It doesn't it doesn't age well. It doesn't become me. Yeah, they're holding on to it, man. <laughs> but like, I'm curious about that that scene. Like, you know how? And just to go back, because I don't know a lot about that, like, Boston, mm-hmm. where you started, mm-hmm. is really, you know, where a lot of the folk scene started. Yep. Yeah, I mean, it was, I think New York was a little later, even. I think maybe it was. And, yeah. and also, it was Boston, but Boston, but this, in some ways, the center of it was Cambridge. Cambridge. Was it was yeah. Passim's there, or was it before no, that? No, that's, Passim's is what came after F- Club 47. Okay, Club 47. Um, yes, the woman, Betsy, just took the whole thing, Club yeah. 47, and moved it across town, and it became Passim's. Right. But she kept up the tradition of the folks, you know, wandering troubadours yeah. came through. It's admirable. Yeah, yeah and, and but the, those people, I mean, because I don't know, like my dad, you know, had, was he had a Pete Seeger songbook, and I don't know that a lot of people or even me have him in full context, but mm. he was like mind blowing, right? He was mind blowing, and he, for me, was one of the turning points in my life. Yeah, you know, you met him or just the music? Um, early on, I do not remember the concert, but my aunt, my parents, of course, were panic that all all I listened to was rhythm and blues. Right. What's a little girl? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So my aunt took me to see Pete Seeger. I must have been 16. And apparently that's what happened. It was like a good vaccine and it took. And from then on it was Pete Seeger and Odetta and Harry Belafonte and you know, and, and I hid the Kingston trio at the back of my record pile because that was very uncool. <laughs> have commercial people in your house, you know. Uh-huh. When, as a folky? Yeah, as a folky. Yeah. I guess that folk music was, uh, uh, it, it wasn't initially a movement, mm, right? No. But it did seem to lead into 
uh, civil rights. I guess there always was that. I mean, with Pete. Well, there two. I mean, there there wasn't the songwriting uh, phenomenon that happened after it was old those stuff. years. Yeah, um, trying to remember the the first ones. Yeah. long before Dylan and that, but it was people singing old folk songs. Yeah, it certainly was for me, and I was ridiculous. I mean, I was ridiculous. It was supposed to come from your great grandfather to your grandfather. Yeah, and I never read anything yeah. about it. And I yeah. never took notes. I just had to learn it directly. It just moved you. Yeah, it moved me, and I was a real pain in the ass with it. You know, people wanted to set up a stage for me all nice and put flowers here, and I said, no, we gotta have black on the stage. Yeah. Oh, I don't want any props. I don't want to be commercial. commercial. I said that was so difficult. <laughs> it's got to be just raw, it's bare, gotta, yeah. dark. Yeah, true. Yeah. Bare yeah. bones. Authentic. Yeah. Who were the people in that scene that you were playing with, like or around? Oh, let's was see. Was Fahey around there? No. No. No, that was a little more progressive and a little bit later. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of them are obscure, yeah. relatively obscure. Eric von Schmidt. Yeah. Was, was there. He never was a huge star. I think Dylan referenced him in a song, right? Probably, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 Von Schmidt. Um, my sister Mimi. Yeah. My locals. I mean, Debbie Green. I learned so much stuff from her. She and I were going to BU. I went, I for, went to BU. Did you really? Yeah. <laughs> I went for six weeks and then had to lie to my parents for the rest of the time. For a whole semester, <laughs> I was sneaking up to my boyfriend's room and, you know, yeah. Adam's house. Yeah. Harvard. Um, he was at Harvard? Yeah. Yeah. But like, were and was there were there old blues guys coming through too? Yes, there were. Um, they might have ended up more in Boston because by then Boston was um, kind of more mainstream. Who mm-hmm. goes and then then New York and Gertie's folk city. And then you went down there a couple times. Oh, but it really wasn't no, part of your story. Not really. Huh. A little bit. A little bit. That's where I met Bob. It was at Gertie's right. folk city. And who was around there? Von Rock was around. Von Rock was around. Yeah. yeah. You know who was around was um, Hugh Romney, uh-huh. who is now Wavy Gravy. Oh yeah. And I yeah, met yeah. him in a club, um, and he was doing poetry. I mean, he was. Yeah, yeah. And he was Ernest. Poetry, huh? like yeah, yeah, up? he was making it up as he went along. It was about the stars and like the beatnik sky. stuff. Beat absolute beatnik stuff. Yeah, and he there was somebody else with him, and he yeah. was he was just having an on about the stars and trombones and an instruments yeah. or whatever. And somebody <laughs> said to me, "Sing to it." So I started ooh, ooh, singing. That yeah, was yeah. one of my cooler moments yeah. in my life. Yeah, <laughs> riffing with wavy. Gravy yeah, exactly. At the poetry scene. Yeah, before he was wavy. Yeah. So when did you start? Like, when did? How many records? Well, you were pretty huge right away, right? Well, that's the trick of it. Yeah, yeah. it was an overnight. It was. It was the my wonderful Club Forty Seven, fifteen dollars a night. That was a raise. Yeah. And two nights a week, it had been only one. So yeah. I was busy getting rich, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And sitting around learning folk songs. And um, so, what was your question? I don't remember. When did like when did it become sort of international? Oh. Like when did you become a phenomenon? Okay, I guess yeah. folk. You you were right. You were there when it became a. Exactly. A, a full international phenomenon. Well, the the women who ran Club 47, it, yeah. it had been a jazz club. Right. It was a jazz club. Yeah. And then they saw this coming, and they took one night a week to make it a folk club. Right. And then that went to two nights a week, and then I don't even know if they had any jazz by the time I was well into it. Huh. Because they saw the wave coming, and they were smart enough to get on. It was all it. very earnest, and it was— it, <laughs> Very earnest, yeah. And it's, it's, inter- it's interesting because it was all happening in the shadow of, you know, pretty dramatic— 
dramatic rock music evolving as well, right? Mm, not just yet? A, not quite yet. Oh, it's, no, it's, it's the mid-60s. Here's a cross, yeah. kind of a crossover, when it would cross over to the boys from England coming over here. Right, right. Yeah. And, but that was later, because I keep forgetting that this is like early to mid-60s. Yeah. So it was still pretty much pop rock music. Uh, pretty much I guess it developed into pop rock, but yeah. it was just. Um, it's so weird, folk. but when you, well, I mean, not the folk developing, but alongside of folk, the popular music was yeah. rock and roll. Yeah. So you guys were like doing this com- almost ancient thing. <laughs> <laughs> Last time I sang a, a, a first state, New York, and Pete Seeger came to the show. He just kept shaking his head, saying, "Why do you need those drums?" <laughs> <laughs> I said, you know, I get it, Pete, but some of us have moved on. He also said this great thing is people are always saying, well, who are the young groups you listen to? And yeah. I don't know enough of them to really make any sense out yeah. of an answer. And I said, they asked Pete, who, he said he doesn't really listen to music until he's forced to when he takes his grandchildren to the ice skating rink. <laughs> he's a real purist. So he only heard it when they were skating around on those bad speakers? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So when does it become like? Uh, when do you feel? Because I mean, you you've you've mentioned in some of the stuff I've seen this guy, you know, Ira Sandpearl. Yeah. And 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 I don't know really anything about him, and I know that you know you had a, a Quaker upbringing to mm-hmm. a certain degree. But when does it become apparent? You know, once you become sort of a a star in this world, Mm -hmm. uh, when does it become apparent that the social responsibility activism of it? To me, it came way early. I mean, I think it's worth noting that the first song I really clicked for me, I mean, I sang a lot and I loved it, was Emmett Till. Mm -hmm. And so I was 15 or 16. And that song that I was sort of beginning to find where I was super comfortable. Uh-huh. And also mentions in the film that I had, you know, we had What Have They Done to the Rain? It's a very gentle, you know, protest song. Yeah. Yeah. And last night I had the strangest dream. And yeah. those had those were current. Mm-hmm. Um, but it wasn't until Dylan. Yeah. That we and in the film it says that really made sense whether they made sense or not, because they don't necessarily, but it's something that we were Really, really driven to have in our arsenals yeah. with those songs. Yeah. Um, I mean, even like on the last record you did uh, in 2018, that song, The President Sang Amazing Grace, yeah. it was like, that's like right in the zone. Yeah. You, you know, and I don't I don't know the person who wrote that. Mm-hmm. And you singing it was the first time I heard it recently. Mm-hmm. This is like two days ago. Uh-huh. And, you know, it kind of moved me in the way that those original songs do. Well, it's an extraordinary song. I mean, yeah. it's, it's sort of channeled from somewhere, and um, it just... But it comes right out of that continuum. Yes, it does. Of, yeah. of real, uh, y- you know, activist music, mm-hmm. folk music. Mm-hmm. So so th- most of this happened around you and Dylan when it becomes no, sort of activated? No, no, no. I was... I, I did my first um, little sit-in by myself when I was 16, in school, because there was going to be an air raid drill, and we were all supposed to, you don't get into your desks anymore, we were all supposed to go home. Uh-huh. And if some of the parents were coming to pick up their kids. So my father's a physicist, and I said, how long is going to take a, a missile to get from Moscow to Palo Alto High School? Yeah. And it wasn't really realistic having us go home <laughs> yeah. and eat survival biscuits or whatever the plan yeah. was. Yeah. So I stayed in school. 
They made a big, you know, I just stayed in the class. They said, what are you doing? And I said, I'm protesting this nonsense that you're let, allowing these kids or encouraging these kids to believe they're going to be okay. Mm. You know, if they're if we start a war, they're going to be safe, and uh, you know, and they're not. So, did that come from just a, a, a childish in, impulse, or or sort no. of a pacifist impulse? Passive, pacifist. And that's I, something you learned growing up. Uh, yes, that is something I learned. And Ira was the um, they call him first day teacher, um, Sunday Sunday school okay. teacher, basically when I was that age, and he began the process of. Teaching me, you know. Where, at what Sunday school? Because I no, they have it. They, they call first day school. Oh, okay. From the Quakers. Okay. Okay. And you know they find a room. We, we to, he would call it sermons on the pavement because we didn't have a room. We just. But he's a Jewish up. guy, right? Yeah. <laughs> yes, he was a Jewish guy. <laughs> but he was he was teaching at this at this Quaker school. Of course, of course. Listen, for the Quakers, there's no. Oh yeah, it doesn't matter. No, uh-uh. just as long as the message is correct. Uh, yeah, as long as you don't kill anybody, you can just come in. You know, <laughs> anybody could <can> come. <laughs> and, th- and so that was the first time. And then as a, so that was that was in your heart all the way all the way through. It was yeah, from when I was very little actually, it was. And what when you because you sort of delivered Dylan to the world, mm-hmm. you know, a painful birth. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I know you talk about it a lot, but I, I don't see because I didn't live through that time. I don't really know what the electricity and the culture you know you all were were creating. That you know, obviously, the two of you were speaking for an entire uh, um, not the entire culture, but certainly for the young people to to kind of figure out a way how to have some language and action. Mm-hmm. Uh, around you know what was a, a civil rights nightmare, and mm-hmm. and the wars are about to come, mm-hmm. and you were you were both aware of that. Yes, I think so. Uh, I think so. And I didn't write songs till I was ten years in, so it was God on my side. That was the first wow. Yeah. You know. Yeah. The first wow, and you could still sing it. I mean, it's interesting because now a, a youth. The youth, yeah. or whatever, was gun control, and they're singing Dylan songs because they haven't been replaced yet. There are no anthems to replace. Um, Isn't that Dylan, wild? Yeah, it is wild. And it's because, it, it, like, a lot of times I think, like, is, is there nobody writing this stuff, or is there nobody with the sort of like magical gravitas? That those songs had. Probably a little bit more number two, yeah. you just said. Yeah. Because uh, there was a lot of charisma banging around during those 10 years. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And when when you guys played together, I mean it, it seems that well certainly him, but you were you were pretty careful not to associate or identify politically other than I mean other than you know this is wrong. Well, no. I mean, was I left wing or right wing? No, that's right. the whole point. Right. That you're not a wing. You right. Know, you're right yeah. there. I would get in trouble. I mean, Argentina, they throttled me because I said a beating with a hose is the same whether it's a right wing with a hose or a left wing with a oh, hose. Oh, right, right. And the balconies, kids falling over the balcony furious because I wasn't sticking to their program. Well, that's um, sort of happening now. Uh, around Israel a little bit in in terms of how that's understood, you know, and that, you know, that you can't have, like, you're you're talking about just, you know, people outside of government influence or government control that are the victims of this whole thing. And and there's there's a lot of people that are quick to identify everybody as being part of the, the monsters that are governing 
the situation. Yeah, people can't help themselves. And, and, you know, we try to make some sense out of it. And, I mean, I have at least heard over and over again from the press that Hamas is not the West Bank. Hamas is not Gaza. Hamas is not, you know, the Palestinian people. Uh, but it's hard for people to grasp that if that's how they're yeah. black and white. Mind but it's the same them. with the Israeli government. I mean, they don't represent all Jews. No, they don't. <laughs> no, please. I hope not. Yeah. <laughs> Some yeah. of my best friends are Jews. They got nothing to do with Netanyahu. <laughs> Netanyahu, I call him. Yeah. There was something very heartbreaking about the moment in the film where after whatever you and Dylan went through, and then you sort of kind of come back around after he's become bigger than life, mm-hmm. and you were kind of, you know, you know sidelined. Mm-hmm. It, it made me very sad. Oh, me too. It was horrible. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, we, you put it very specifically. I, I think you said it, that it was really – there were just all these guys around. It was a boys club, and it, and everybody was doing drugs. I didn't do my quaalude stint until way later. And this was oh, So this is right after he went electric-ish? He went, yeah. yeah. He was in the process of doing it. Yeah, with and the he, band. Yeah, and for him, I, I always have to give him credit that he did that. And people were going to – he knew – there was going to be this wall of fire coming from people who didn't want him to. Well, you know, I was probably more in that camp than I was open-minded. What, what are you What's doing? he doing with that electric guitar or right. horrors? You yeah, know? yeah. <laughs> but with the but the purity of of like you you know it's very it's very funny because you you, you know I you know I tried to get you know I don't know Bob Dylan mm-hmm. and I had like yeah. nobody does. Is that right. what you're going to say? Yeah. yeah. It's a, but uh, I tried to, I wanted to get him on my thousandth episode. I thought, like, look, I've interviewed presidents. I can't get this guy. So I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm sending letters and going through the bookers, and finally someone tells me to call Rosen, you know, yeah, Jeff. Yeah. And I just get on the phone with him. I'd met him once before. I'm like, look, it's real important. It's my thousandth episode. And I think it'd be amazing conversation if me and Bob and I go on and on. I go, what are the chances of, of that happening? And, and Rosen goes, zero. <laughs> Yeah, and, and Rose is the nicest guy in the world. Yeah, yeah. he's been with him for forever. Mm-hmm. And I said to him, I said, well, why don't you come on? He's like, are you kidding? Why do you think I have this job? <laughs> I don't talk yeah. to anybody. Well. But I, I, I just have a hard time, you know, because it seems to me that in, in some ways, you know, looking at the, the breadth of, of your work, that you kind of, you knew who you were pretty early on-ish. Ish, as a, ish yeah. You know, as a, as a voice and as a singer. Yep. And that it seems that when you met him, he was like this weird sponge of like like what, what was it seemed like a, a fairly sweet guy, yeah. And and then like you know he just kept letting things in that built him and built him. Yeah. I mean, there were moments where like you know I can see the way he plays with his hat, and it's like, well, that's Ramblin' Jack. I mean, he did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know what that's I mean? That's funny. I never thought of that. Yeah. Like I like yeah. like I did. You ever watch a, that doc on Ramblin' Jack? I'm no, like, no. He, oh my god! It, it was almost like you know, Dylan took his whole personality to figure out how to charm audiences. <laughs> but you know, I'm not. As yeah. you're speaking, I have this great image in my mind from Rolling Thunder. Yeah. they gave us this beautiful book of photographs. One of them is <laughs> Jack Elliott's bare ass leaving the one room on the bus. Yeah, <laughs> nobody even noticed. <laughs> <laughs> well, that well. Into, like you just did an event the other night uh, in New York with Jane Fonda, mm-hmm. and so you guys are okay now. Yeah, and we didn't even know each other. We didn't know each other, but she was so firmly in the left um, camp with Hayden. And, yeah, um, back in the day. Back in the day, yeah. And I was really—I mean, if we'd go get arrested or something, yeah. I was in the pacifist camp, no matter what. 
Yeah. Yeah. No matter what. So it didn't give us a whole lot of ground, Jane and me. It was very sweet. She stood up at the Q&A the other night, and she said, we weren't friends. And I said, <laughs> it's not too late. You know? Oh, that's nice. Yeah. So, you know, we have become friends. She's she's tough. She's tough, broad, and I <laughs> yeah. really ad- admire her. Yeah, but I mean, all that that came around when you you went to Hanoi, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you went over there. Like that was a different time. Like it, it's weird because I was trying to think about a precedent, that precedent in terms of what happens now. And occasionally, you know, Sean Penn will drop himself into a war zone, and <laughs> and it seemed like then again because the communication environment was smaller mm-hmm. that, you know, it, it was not necessarily seen as a, a self-promoting right. uh, a right. journey to right. go give voice to something yeah. you believed in. Right. Right. And in, in even around, you know, draft resistance. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, I mean, that stuff like, I, I guess what I'm trying to not even figure out, but it, it seemed like everybody was just doing folk music and then everyone was dragged into <laughs> <laughs> no, it's true. standing up for something. Yeah, yeah, good. It's good. Good. Nice to put pressure on people for that. <laughs> well, who else was going to do it? Yeah. I mean, because, you know, the, you know, it seemed like there was one journey going towards, you know, psycho uh, astronauts, like, mm-hmm. you know, drugs and just mm-hmm. pushing the limit mm-hmm. and, and taking the blues and turning them inside out and yeah. occasionally taking folk music and making it pop music. <laughs> but but in terms of the voice, and that's got to come directly from, from Seeger and, and mm-hmm. Odette and how Harry uh, Belafonte, Belafonte yeah. right? I mean— I remember hearing about Pete that he has somebody like uh, 60 Minutes, whatever it was back then— Supposed to do uh, a thing with him, and he's on the roof repairing the shingles. Yeah. I'll be down when I'm down. Yeah. You know, I thought, oh, this is my guy. <laughs> you know, that yeah. was the first thing that really took me yeah. about him. Like, yeah. And that's, that was the path I wanted to follow. Now, when you, like, when you got involved with the civil rights movement, I mean, that, you know, that's, that, that's a— like they were all happening almost simultaneously. I mean, I don't guess when that was happening that the war in Vietnam was fully realized yet, right at the beginning. No, I remember in 1964. Yeah. Um, before that, yeah, we were sending our quote advisors in, right. and I got a letter from <laughs> President Johnson. Right. Would I be interested in leading young Democrats for Johnson? And <clears throat> my. Honestly, I was such a snoot. Yeah. I wrote back and I said, if, if he took these visors out of Vietnam, I'd consider it. Oh, you're doing global policy. That's good. Yeah, bang. Yeah. Right off the bat, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And did you get a letter back? Uh, I probably got a thank you very much back. <laughs> but but who were, like, what were the organizing uh, sort of factions back then? I know— that your husband was, you draft know, draft resistance, yeah, a, a public draft resistor, and that was the point, right? Yeah, and, yeah, and that got that made sense for me. Yeah. Aside from the fact that I fell in love with David, yeah, was that they okay? This is about risk again, right? I mean, these guys are putting the whole thing on the line, yeah, and that's why when I'm saying I admire these guys, uh, I usually find I think I find places to where I go. And it's something that courage is contagious, and they, you know, they fill me with it, and I'm, you know, able to go to jail and all of that stuff because of somebody else's um, courage. Yeah, but but it's interesting because the the direct 
channel that you become is that you know when you when you are uh, sort of engaged with those people that you're saying you have courage, which you do as well, is that that changes the meaning of the folk music. Oh, I see where you're back to music. No, um, no, no, no. I'm not. Kind of. I'm just saying that your your presence there was not coincidental. Do you, you know you you were in that world right. because of music. Right. But what what I was just was making the connection was that once folk music became activated for current issues, mm-hmm. that you become a representative of those issues, yep. even if the songs don't speak Exa- to them. Exactly. Exactly, Mark. That's what I try to... It, it's not about the content. It's about the context. Right. For instance, it, probably Woodstock or one of the... Yeah. Wherever it was. And I I said, you know, we made a protest song out of Green Grass of Home because all I, I said, this is my husband's favorite song. He's in jail at X for how many years because of X. And then I sing a country and western song. And, it, and, the, and it's become a political... You know, a political. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Your your version of that song is probably the best. Oh, thank you. Th- those Nashville records are kind of like I, I'm kind yeah. of fascinated with them. Oh boy, those were those were sessions. The early ones, they were. Oh my sh- God, Jerry Reed. Yep. You know, Pete Drake. Yep. You know, uh, what's yep. his, that guy's name? Pig. Pig. Uh, Pig. I don't yeah. remember his last Robbins, name. Robbins. Pig Robbins. Is that it? <laughs> I don't know. Just yeah, Pig. yeah, yeah, yeah. He would play the piano standing with his back to it. Yeah. Oh, really? Yep. He was blind, number one. But number two, he'd back his bum into the piano and, and play with his hands, <laughs> looking the other direction. He was a showman. Or not looking the other He was a showman. They were all showmen. There was a, there was a moment, because I had my New York producers, you know, from Vanguard, which is basically a company that, that recorded classical music. Yeah, yeah. And so I was all on pins and needles, because I, here I was with these guys, the... But it's, Dylan had already recorded with them, right? A couple of them? I had don't he think done? so. Oh, not yet? Mm-mm. Okay. No. And anyway, we, we broke the ice by finally going to... You know, they were leery of this pinko. And I was really <laughs> leery of rednecks, you know. Yeah, yeah. So we went to lunch and at some point, and Grady Martin, the, the king of them all, told this joke and it was really a test to see what my reaction would be it was some trucker driving yeah. through the south and he stops at steakhouse and he goes in and he orders a steak and she says well is that a rump steak or would you like a flank or would you? he said just a steak and she goes at it again would you like he says listen just cut off his horns and wipe, wipe his ass yeah. and bring, bring me my dinner. <laughs> yeah. So I guffawed because I thought it was very funny. Yeah. And then we became friends. And then there was this issue of me being part of the guys and my New York producer being this intellectual. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So he's on the other side of the glass and I'm worrying about what he's going to say next. And at one point he said, oh, I think this needs a little bit of a diminuendo. And there's this silence in the room. And then Kenny Butchery moves in. To the microphone, he says, I believe that's a little tiny window. (laughs) (laughs) Ask my producer, please go home. (laughs) Well, those, I mean, I, like, I didn't realize until the other day that you covered No Expectations. Yeah. By the Stones. Yeah. So those records were done because you're, because David liked country music. One of them. One of them was for him. Yeah. Yeah, and but but that was the natural evolution, wasn't it? It, it must was, have it must have changed the way you looked at the music. Um, you know what? I think my in spite of his being you know a little bit stiff, that Maynard Solomon, who ran the Vanguard Records, saw it coming. I was going to run out of traditional folk songs, and you know he <laughs> yeah. kind of veered into country and western, which was convenient with David because that's that's what he loved. And then any day now was all Dylan's material. But, 
Right. But but outside of sort of strange English and, and Gaelic roots, I mean, folk music is, you know, is country and blues, right? Yeah. Sure. I mean, we can include it that way and I'll sure. worry about it. <laughs> yeah. But but going back a little bit, what was how did you get involved? Because you do have courage. I mean, you're you're down there, you know, marching. Mm. So it's not and I know there were other, you know, celebrities who were not necessarily uh, regular people, not Bro- n- not big risk takers, right? You, yeah, but but it became a risk. I mean, it was a oh, risk. Oh, sure, yeah, sure. I mean, certainly after those those three uh, the boys yeah. got, were killed. Yeah, I mean, it, it, you you must have realized in that moment that no one is really safe down there. Oh, of course, yeah. And how did you initially get involved with uh, with that? Um, King would ask me. I mean, we had a. Report. You knew him before, you and Martin yeah, Luther King, yeah. I, I did, and then he knew the Institute for Nonviolence, oh. he became friends with Ira, so we would take his people. So that was Ira's institute? The institute it was mine, and yeah, yes, Ira's. I opened it with Ira, yeah. And I opened it because I had learned so much from him, and then I thought, you know, if there are a group of people, right. we're probably going to learn more. Right. That was really the inception of it. And, 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 and just the introduction, the, the, the notion that that was an, a, a, a relevant and new idea, mm. You know, active nonviolence yeah. as political protest right. is kind of it's mind blowing and it almost feels uh, kind of not dated, but but you're That's not because the only figure we really latch on to until King was Gandhi. Yeah. And, yeah, that's dated, you know, and then there are all these things going on around the world. But if they don't have the charismatic leader, you don't hear about them. Well, th- this is a problem right now, Joan. Mm. Where the fuck are they? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I mean, it's like I I think that, you know, sadly, you know, that the evolution of whatever happened in the 60s with the boomers that became rich, Mm -hmm. that, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, know, the self has become more important than the civic. It has. And I when I look back, I really want to say that I don't think we can take away from the victories during, yeah. I mean, sitting in a, a lunch counter like that and that courage, that determination, that nonviolence, it's part of us and mm-hmm. it's a part of the society. And even if we have fallen back, way back, that's there for us to to live up to again, one form or another. And that, you know, my advice in a sense to all the young singers and all the young kids, what can I do, what can I do? What keeps coming to my mind is whatever you do, go make trouble. Go make good trouble. Yeah. Go make good trouble. Yeah. I mean, it, it, you know, the right, good trouble, because, you know, again, through appropriation of uh, 60s radicals methods, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you have almost a coup at the fucking Capitol building, <laughs> you know, that they're framing as a protest. Yeah. 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 It, it, it all gets very tricky. I, I, I don't have much hope. But, uh, no, I don't either. Oh, I'm glad to hear you say it because most people say, where do you get all your hope? I said, you know, I don't really have that much. You got to do what you got to do anyway. Yeah. That's it. Somebody said, I think it was Ann Patchett, hope is a practice. Mm. And it, I don't practice it very well, but I do try. Right. Because being a caustic pessimist is not really helpful to anybody. No, and you're you're not you get slowly you're uninvited to parties. And, you know. <laughs> That's okay. That part's okay. So they, I don't want to you know bum them out. Yeah, don't invite Joan uh, again. No. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, when did when did uh, Buddhism become part of your life? Let's see. Probably, let's see, maybe twenty years ago. Oh, that's it. Huh? Recent. 
2030. But you see this little crossover from uh, Quaker meeting because it's all about silence and meditation. Yeah. So the Buddhist friends I have, that was, you know, that's where I was. It was comfort zone for me. There was introspection and, um, you know, openness and forgiveness. And that was all Quaker lingo as well. Sure. So you, you had the practice, but you didn't have the, the sort of... Uh it, maybe you didn't have the big nothing available. I, I didn't have the Quan Yin sitting on my desk there. <laughs> yeah. well, there's a great Quan Yin, um, a little poster. Yeah. She's sitting there all peacefully. Yeah. And it says, time to let go of that shit. <laughs> it could go for anybody at <laughs> any time. So after, you know, the the big event on, on in D.C., which you know takes you into another sphere in terms of what you represent mm-hmm. with uh, with Martin Luther King. I mean, did you feel the weight of responsibility? I mean, was there part of you that was sort of like, oh my god, you know, yeah? You know, like I, I just wonder in watching the the documentary that the arc of of what you were part of and then also what you were seen as and also was did you feel like how do I keep this up? Well, you know, in the film and it says. I feel like I lead a movement. I love that. I'm yeah. going to start a movement, you yeah. know, saying that I think people would follow, but I have to be ready to go if anybody shows up or not. And that's more the feeling of this little person and absolute determination. Mm. Um, I didn't, I don't think I felt it as, you know, a weight on my shoulders. I mean, there's certainly challenges. Yeah. And um, then at the end of the film, it's saying, I used to, feel the world on my shoulders. And my mom said, well, when I was eight, she came and smoothed out my forehead, which was worried. She said, oh, honey, you look as though you have the weight of the world yeah. on your shoulders. So I don't really know the answer to the question. But confronted with, would you come into Grenada, Mississippi, and walk these kids to school? And King saying, I can't get there until Wednesday. Could you go Monday? Yeah. That wasn't, oh, what responsibility. Yeah. It was, oh, boy. You yeah. Know, I, I get to I, do something meaningful. And, and you just go. Yeah, I just go. But you didn't have the same anxiety and stage fright around that. No, was that stuff. interesting? No. Yeah. Uh. Uh-uh. Huh. No. Because it was, uh, it, it it was service in a way. Thank you. Exactly. Right. Hallelujah. <laughs> <laughs> Hallelujah. <laughs> but like, how did you, you know, when they put your husband in jail, you knew he was going to go to jail when you got pregnant, right? Mm-hmm. And that was part of the plan. I think we just felt, I mean, a cover of Look magazine, yeah, a peace couple, yeah, David and Joan and holding the little baby. And you'd already been on Time Magazine's cover, right? Yeah. Before? Yeah. A long, long time ago. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Horrible, ugly picture, but there it is. <laughs> <laughs> I had my priorities uh-huh, and they didn't sure. pay any attention no. to them. Um, yeah. It was kind of like the way we thought, the yeah. way we thought. People go to jail. People pay a certain price. You know, you risk something and you pay that price. I mean, it was a pretty big price. I see by looking at my own letters when I look back, uh, you know, in the film. The responsibility of, of having a child and I was and trying touring. To be, and... You know, I got, I was visited by, when I, Gabe had been born, we were in my little, that shack. It was, was a shack. Was on, you, were, you were living on commune or where were you? It was a commune. My, my house was separate from the main yeah. commune. Um, so how many people were wandering around? How many? A lost? lot of people wandering around, and people would come by the house and throw pebbles at the window. I mean, and somebody would show up at the door and say, "We're in big sacks of grain. We're going to go and seed the country. Would you come with us?" 
<laughs> Fuck no. But they saw me as this one thing, you sure, know? Sure, Yeah, it was yeah. all projected onto you. Yeah, it was. Yeah. And it's... then some lunatic at the over at the main house. Yeah. It's this guy digging a hole wanting to bury his boots. So, okay, so he figured he's schizophrenic. <laughs> and they're all saying, can we give you something to eat? Would you like to stay here? Yeah. Can we? And I said to him, would you like to go to the hospital? And he said, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I can't even imagine that time, man. <laughs> Just because everyone was, you know, once it got broken open and, and the youth movement, you know, kind of manifested in all its different ways. They were just untethered. <laughs> exactly. just, you know, they're just people wearing sandals. And you you add some pretty heavy drugs to that. Yeah. And you go. Yeah, new, I mean, it's a new world order. No kidding. Yeah. I mean, because by like by what, 67, the acid was out. Yeah. Right? And then there was all the dope. Yep. <laughs> wow. And they, and they just show up. I, I, they you know, would just show up, yeah. And you had to deal with that. On top of having a kid, on top of having a record <laughs> career, and, and a husband in jail, you've got some guy burying his boots outside. <laughs> Plus, one day I'm, I'm strutting around being a mom, and I was going to have a visit from these women. Yeah. And I was not connecting to feminism at all. I was a strong woman, but didn't was not a part of their consciousness yeah. yet. And so they came to visit, and I'm busy making tea, and I'd made cookies. Yeah. And <laughs> that's not what they wanted to see. All I wanted to talk about was being a housewife stuff. Yeah. I was yeah, so yeah, enchanted yeah. with it. Yeah. They are not hearing about that. Did he have an okay time with prison, or was it hard? No, I think it was hard for him. I mean, the ones with Quaker backgrounds. Yeah. Much easier. Mm. You've been trained in a different way. Right. David was Fresno Boy of the Year. Yeah. And uh, and and a charismatic leadership yeah. role and resistance. And I think it was really hard for him in there. It was like a year and a half or something. It was two years. Yeah. Yeah. And then, uh, so so after he comes out, it wasn't necessarily the prison that didn't work. It made it not work out. It was just the idea. Is you? Is that I couldn't do intimacy. Yeah, I couldn't <laughs> like that look. Can I have a photograph of that look? <laughs> you and me both, sister. Yeah. Still not great at it. No. And that's you know at the end of all of my going through the tunnel, coming out, all the therapy, and you know really grounded and feeling like a human being the first time in my life. And the therapist sort of hints at, well, the next step is you go. And find a partner. I said, don't even bring it up. No interest. I'm happy. Why fuck it up? You know, for that next level of intensity. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm happy. Well, the thing about the intimacy when you have experienced some sort of, you know, boundaryless, uh, <laughs> you know, predation or, or, or uh, in, in, in infiltration of your young spirit yeah. is that two things happen is that you want to protect yourself against that at all costs emotionally, yeah. but you're also fundamentally codependent. So if you ever even try intimacy, you're going to lose yourself in that other person. <laughs> well spoken. Right? Uh, Within like 10 minutes, you're like, well, we'll do whatever you need. Five. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. Yes. And I, I like I you know, I don't know how to fathom that shit. But I like the point of view that it's like I'm okay. You know, I'm I you know, I'm I'm fine, you know, living in my house by myself. Yeah. I can be with people, but yeah. they don't have to be there all the time. Right. <laughs> and you know, let me make myself perfectly clear. I live alone in my house 
but I have a number of people on a two-acre property. So they're my friends, and I can call them if somebody's within shouting distance. So it's sure. different from saying I live alone and being out in some... Yeah, I mean, I have relationships. I'm in a relationship. But, like, you know, at this age I'm at, which has just turned 60, you know, there's some things I'm not going to... You're, uh, you're a squirt. I know. But I, <laughs> but I, 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 I do have this feeling that there are some things I'm not going to be able to unfuck. <laughs> <laughs> People or things? No, me. Know, you know, know, it's like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm fucked up. But, you know, maybe this is, you know, some of it I can live with. If you want to live with it, then don't bother. I mean, that's the, exactly what I it's came to with trying to find a, quote, partner. It's a, definitely a choice. And, and for a while I would say, and I thought, and who knows, maybe it's true. If I were, you know, I'm really protecting yeah. myself and I got my blinders on. But if somebody passed... By yeah. and I was drawn to that person. Yeah, hey, maybe be worth thinking about. Guess what? <laughs> Nobody's <laughs> passed by. A lot of people walking out there, and I haven't seen any, you know any. I haven't allowed myself to see. But but also after a certain point, when you when you know who you are, you can't really trust your first instincts, can you? Absolutely. And they yeah. say now you can get back to. Um, normal this. Now you can get back to normal that, but there wasn't any normal, so I'm just getting to it. Yeah, I'm right. just getting to it. I know. What's it really like to live, yeah. you know, in this way, like before? There was no before. There's there's now. So so the, 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 the sort of chronology of you, you know, coming to terms with your trauma was really you you didn't know why you were so adrift yeah. like the, I, like the thing I can't get out of my mind is you talking about the the picture of the cover of that one record where you're wearing the goggles <laughs> I can't like I cannot like you know, I remember that album in, in record stores when I was a kid but then I was like after you brought it up you know I I listened to it and and it's weird you, you know that 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 cover of you in the pilot's gear or whatever it was, you were just fucked up. Right? I was just fucked up. Yeah. But but uh, I listened to those records it's and good records. It is a good record. Yeah. But there is like that you you can tell that you know something is not holding oh. you together like it was that there you know your voice is it, it remains constant, but there are shifts in tone you know throughout all the records. And and some of them are are grounded. And, you know, I can hear the difference between young you and then confident you. Few albums in, mm-hmm. and then like the Nashville records are strong as mm-hmm. hell. But but there's a slight difference when I think you become a little lost. Yeah, because yeah. you didn't know really. I mean, who you were as an artist. Is, yeah, exactly. And yeah, and I was. I mean, Quaalude aside, which eventually it was. Um, there was that cavern that I went into and confused. And <laughs> I love the scene of me trying to be hip and groovy with the Amnesty International concert. Oh, with that, the outfit and the, yeah, the outfit. jumping around? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is why what a dope. <laughs> you know, and you say you don't have courage. You put that in the movie. <laughs> well, you know, we have a joke about that. Yes, yeah. I've been in the bomb shelter. Yes, I've been gassed in Latin America. Yes, yeah. I've dealt with the Ku Klux Klan. But... Nothing like the courage it took to do this film with natural light. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you look great now, but I mean, we've all had those sort of, uh, you know, kind of wardrobe, you know, misjudgments. (laughs) Yep. Yeah. But so what is the, what what were the, you know, like the Quaalude thing, you say, you know, that what, when did that start? I mean, what, what record are we talking about? Well, that would have been, I don't know what came before that, Goggles cover. Yeah. Um, but it was that 
that was the result of it, that album. And it must have been. So it was right after Diamonds and Rust? I guess so. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh-huh. Because yeah. like Diamonds and Rust is a full-throated. It's a magnificent album. It's a great of, yeah. record. Yeah. And it, it, I, I wonder if that, you know, that whatever, because a lot of those songs were yours, right? Yeah. And I wonder if, if, if that, was, that was the beginning of the breakdown after that. Well, not because of that. No, 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 but no. Because, but, yes, it was because of the sequences. That, that, and I mentioned it, but it's only brief in the yeah. film. It's, um, I've been hanging out with my gorgeous tour manager. Yeah. Um, who was taking too many drugs, and I didn't even figure that out. Yeah. He was saying, oh, come on, this record company isn't good enough. Let's go here. And then it, it all fell apart, the manager I'd had for Oh, so, so your infrastructure got taken out from under you. Yeah. And then you were just left with— I was just floating for years, but I, I couldn't imagine what it, would, what it was. I didn't know what was happening. I mean, I didn't get it that without the management and the machinery, there was no way to get a record sold. Right. You know— um, and that went on until 35 years ago. And I did three albums, yeah. which are obscure, and absolutely, I absolutely love them. Um, that would be what? The... Speaking of Dreams. Okay. And okay, re- yeah. Recently. And Play Me Backwards? No, Play Me Backwards before that. I was getting my okay. sea legs under me. Yeah. Okay. But Speaking of Dreams, you love? I do. And during the making of that, those... Th- Three albums mm-hmm. or two albums. I literally woke up at night, sat up in bed, and thought, "Why am I making these albums that only my family's going to hear?" You know, yeah. that's kind of when it you who. And then I went looking for management. But aside from that, what what's the timeline of you kind of uh, retrieving these memories of your trauma? Oh, you know, I think it started. Uh, it started after I hired management, which was the thirty five years ago. And so that's like around the same time after speaking of dreams? Well, I was 50. You do the math. 89, 99, 2000. Yeah, all right. In that area. So you mm-hmm. hired the management and then you, you, got, you got off the drugs? Yeah, and that literally had been off him for a long time. That was eight years. I don't remember when it started, but yeah. it ended when Carter took him off the shelves, and I was so relieved, you know. <laughs> the Quaaludes Yeah, were, I'm still were relieved. <laughs> that's, a, that's a hell of a drug. That really, you kind of were kind of low to the ground. Would be, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you were on the Rolling Thunder review all fucked up? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, not as fucked up as everybody else, but in my oh own my way. Oh my god, there, there, there is some cocaine. Watching that, oh yeah, watching those concerts and to see McGuinn. I mean, I thought his head was going to blow up. <laughs> like, it did, and he went to Jesus. <laughs> he did. That happens. Yeah, yeah. Jesus is always there when your head blows yeah. up. <laughs> if you want him, he'll carry your head. Uh, so. So how did you? So you did go into therapy when you, but because in the in the in the movie you you don't. It doesn't seem like you have a full recollection. Of of what happened. That's correct. Yeah, but enough. But it says in there if, if I'm not trying to, pr- I can't prove anything. Sure. And I'm not trying to prove anything. Right. But if twenty percent of what I remember as my own reality is true, then that's enough to right. have done the difficulties that I spent a lifetime dealing with. And and I, I guess, again, not trying to prove it, but your sister's experience in life... Mimi's was, yeah. Implied... Yeah, same thing. Yeah. It was only Pauline who went and lived in the deep in the mountains. She didn't believe any of the stuff or want to deal with it because she loved my parents. Sure. I didn't, you know... 
But you know, it, but you did speak to your dad about it, right? Um, you know, the difficulty and the sadness is that you love your parents. Oh, yeah. And yeah. how do you figure out knowing that they don't remember things any more than I did? Right. And I wanted to to remember my child. I wanted sure. to get at what had made my life, you know, such a misery. It's so many turns. Yeah. And they didn't want to. So there you're stuck with parents you love who don't know what you're talking about. And you love them. And at the same time, you oh, you know. Why did it have to be like this? Why couldn't they be as perfect as we thought they were? Or, or at least cop to it. But, but it doesn't seem, to, in your mind, in how you frame it, it, was it a singular thing or was it, it wasn't a pattern of? Um, right here, I get to where I'm, I'm not comfortable with details. Sure. Um, but, yeah, it wasn't just one person. Let's just say that. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And so... But you did go to therapy to unearth this stuff. Yeah, I'd been in therapy since I was 16 right. for different, but, you know, you yeah. can, just to help me get to the next airplane. Yeah. You know, sure. and so this was a different. Yeah. You, know, it was a you different knew what you were. I knew what I was going in there to crack the kernel. Right. Yeah. And and then you felt like, did you, did that run its course? Well, when I, people ask me what right. I'm proud of, you right. know, aside from the fact that I communicate with my son, which is number one. Yes. You know, it's that I saw the tunnel went in and came out. The oh, other good. End. Yeah. So, yeah. Because so when somebody did say, how would you describe yourself? And out of nowhere came the answer, which was happy. I thought that was so square. <laughs> it's a, it was a, a, a load off, I <laughs> yeah, imagine, yeah, right? Yeah. And, but, but it's nice that, you, you know, because it seems that what you're saying, you know, like some people... I guess you as well, get this mindset that therapy is just the rest of your life. Exactly. You know, I had a therapist. They were just friends, and a therapist was yeah. among us having lunch one day. And she said, well, people don't really change. I thought, oh, dear, I didn't want to hear that. Yeah. But at that point, already I had changed, and I challenged her on it. And uh, it can be. That you don't change, you just learn how to... You make different choices. You make different choices and you protect yourself. I wrote a poem called Phobia. Yeah. And how you, how you can work with it. It's like a dance partner. Yeah. Partner. But did you feel like, you know, once you came through this tunnel that, you know, you had like your, 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 your sense of who you were became solid? Yeah. Right. I felt whole, right. and whole. the phobias yeah. are gone. Now that's a biggie. Wow. You know? Yeah, and and I thought that like the the last couple records were were great. I love the last record. Whistle down the yeah, wind. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, and and how do you like? I this is like an, an interesting question because again, the first time and only time that I sat in a room with Jeff Rosen. Uh-huh was with uh, someone from HBO, Nina Rosenstein, and I was, you know, working down the street, and she knew him, thought it'd be interesting if I met him. And he told me that, like, those records of covers that Dylan did for, like, A, a World Gone Wrong and a couple other ones, mm-hmm. these these covers he did, he's like, oh, yeah, I, I picked all those. <laughs> <laughs> wow, I didn't know that. <laughs> well, now I'm going to get myself in trouble. But but <laughs> but But there's this idea... That like because and I'm not saying it's you, but like you you're choosing very interesting songs mm-hmm. from artists that not everybody knows. Some everybody do, mm-hmm. but uh, but you know you're doing a couple of Tom Waits songs and you do a Joe Henry song. And, and I have produces. to say, my manager himself was real instrumental in all of that, right? Because he he's, he has this pack 
pile of CDs, and he will go through every single one, every single one. And then he'll find a song he thinks will work, and he goes through that. At least, he told me, at least 50 times before he would send it to yeah. me. So a lot came from there. Some came from me. Uh, some came from my assistant, Nancy, who listens to a lot of music. And, oh, I see. So yeah. so it's kind of a, a not a group effort, but be, you people in your life are like, have you heard this? The ones I trust. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And like, I mean, because you did, I, I guess uh, she or they uh, changed their name to Anthony. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, because when that artist was Anthony, Anthony and the Johnsons. Yeah. I mean, that is some of the most heartbreaking fucking music I've ever heard in my life. That song is says exactly how I feel with all its heartbreakingness. Another yeah. world. We need another world. I'm going to miss the birds. I'm going to miss the sea. I can barely get through it. Yeah. You know. And like, and, and I, I think that you, you know, you, you must have listened to, to their version a lot because they're, they have a, a way of vocalizing that's very unique, right? Yeah. The, but you know, I don't listen to a whole lot. When I learn something, yeah. then I put that aside. So and I you don't, take it. Yeah. Yeah, you got to move yourself through it, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. And the Wait songs are always tight and fun. Yeah, oh, those songs are amazing. Do They're, you know him? Do you live by just, him? No. Not, not really? He's a funny guy. You know, I met him on an airplane, and he said, Thank, mumble thanks for doing my song. <laughs> I just mumble thanks for writing them. <laughs> yeah. And also, The Great Correction is great, too. I mean, those songs are really interesting. I don't know uh, Eliza Gilkinson. No. Do you know her? And personally, I don't know. No. Isn't that interesting? That, you know, throughout your life, other than Dylan, you, you know, you, you do people's songs, but you don't necessarily know them because the song is its own thing. It's its own being, in a way. Yeah, and some I know. But, sure. But if a song floats in, you know, out of the office here or an office there or a friend, uh -huh. then it doesn't matter to yeah. me. Who, yeah. yeah, it's a song. Yeah. Right? It's supposed to be that way. Yeah. <laughs> but you knew the guys in the band, and you did, you know, the night they drove old Dixie down. And right? I didn't and hang out with them. I didn't really know them. Oh, you didn't? No, I should have. You know, I, yeah, I, was, I was not in circulation. You know who I think a lot about is Danko. Oh, yeah. So, what a sweet yep. soul that guy was. Mm -hmm. You know, to you know his voice and his whole being. Yeah. I kind of think about him a lot. Do you have people you think about all the time from that era? That era? So some I play, like Robbie Robinson's, Robertson's, one of his story. What is his story, Bill? His album? It's one of my favorite oh, yeah? albums. Yeah. Yeah. Things like that. Van Morrison, in spite of him being what I consider a despicable human being, yeah. has written these beautiful, beautiful songs. <laughs> yeah. Even yeah. if he writes the same thing over and over again, it doesn't matter. Yeah. It's just his delivery. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I know, right? Yep. It's, it's very inspired and, and, yeah. and fluid and improvisational. Yeah. How are your hands? How's the playing? No, I don't play. No I, if I want to play something, it takes me a month to get my fingers working. Really? And I, yeah, when I'm finished tour, or 18, uh, 2018. Yeah. I, you, know, you say I hung up the guitar. I hung up the guitar on the wall, and I didn't take it down for, for I think three and a half or four years. And Bob Weir said, "Be we be a part of this cool evening." And I thought, okay, well, I'll give it a try. Yeah. Because the voice, as you start off in which the film, evening was that with Weir? It was Hager and and Weir, and it was a benefit for something I don't remember. But there were so you um, know Bob, yeah. All right, and and actually, and he said Ta Taj Mahal is going to be part of it. Oh, yeah. So that was the deciding factor because yeah. I hadn't seen him in decades. Yeah, yeah. And I want to see him and hear him. So he's a talker. <laughs> he's a storyteller. Yeah, a yeah, talker, yeah, 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 yeah. So anyway, it took me a month to six weeks to be sure enough that I could do what I was doing because it's in a whole different register. And the more I give up, what I can't do anymore 
and really give it up, yeah. the more comfortable I am singing. So I think your voice sounds great. <laughs> yeah, I mean, because like, you know, I don't know if, if your ego uh, allows it, but I mean, something happens if you keep singing. And 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 it gets there's there's something there's a new character to it. Oh yeah, that that is deeper and more uh, almost uh, uh, raw. Yes, it is. And as I say, I begin liking it, but it's the grasping because starting off as a high soprano, which I love and love listening to. Yeah, yeah. And I, I and I've always felt that it was a gift and that my job was maintenance and delivery. Oh. You know, but I love that those earlier. So that days. was the job, huh? That was the job. It's interesting you thought yeah. it was a job because your voice was very specific and very, you know, it sounded like you had to work at it, right? No, I didn't for the first. Never. Oh yeah. Yeah. After about fifteen or twenty years, uh, things started going screwy. I thought, wait a minute here, I'm not making this note, and this is uncomfortable. Uh, and somebody said, well, why don't you go see a coach? And I thought, well, harumph, yeah. miss, miss natural talent here doesn't, <laughs> doesn't have to do that. And so for the next, for the rest of the career, yeah, I yeah. saw, you know, one coach or another. And that helped? <laughs> well, I wouldn't have been doing any of it without yeah. that help. Yeah. So so you're not, you're not going to tour anymore? No. <laughs> Oof, no. <laughs> you saw me on the bus. <laughs> so you just, what, going to enjoy your life? Oh, my God. I'm writing a poetry book. I just yeah. released the book of Upside Down Drawings. I've oh, been yeah. working like mad on this documentary. Yeah. I'll uh, we'll probably release this coffee table book of the paintings I've done. Oh, those look I, good. I've never, that I can remember, been this busy. <laughs> Yeah. You know? Yeah. But it's with other things. Oh, yeah. The pressure of performing. Is, you is know, lifted. going out to do this, you know, talking with you and talking with yeah. the press and so on is, you know, I got to pack a bag and I got to leave the house. But aside from that, without having to vocalize and the discipline and the guitar playing every single day, you know, that I'm actually singing, which is maybe four nights a week, uh, there was no relief from that. I had to do that. Yeah. And I just, right now, hell, I can paint my nails. Yeah. And, <laughs> and So the dread is gone. Well, it's not dread. No. It got harder. So it wasn't as though it was fluid and fun. After I went to a vocal therapist about eight years before I quit, mm. it became even Easier, okay. Because she gave me some tricks I hadn't had. But you must not it must, the, not having to do that travel. Yeah, must be great. Oh, it's unbelievable. And and you 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 and your son are good. Me and my son just are just. It's an amazing love story. I mean that I that he was willing to go and get help with me. Mm. We bashed this stuff through, and we haven't stopped. Oh. I mean, it's a lot to unpack, and every yeah. time we, you know, we unpack a suitcase full of mold, yeah. we take it, you know, we take that stuff and yeah. get some help with it, yeah. And does he live close by? Or? He does at the moment he's living on my property. Oh, that's good. Yeah. All right. Well, it was great talking to you. Hey, my pleasure. <laughs> I, thought, I thought we did good. We did real good. I love your garage. Thank you. <laughs> There you go. That was me and Joan Baez having a good time. The documentary is now playing in theaters. And uh, hang out for a second, people. 
Hey, folks, this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. You know all those times you've heard guests sneeze on the show. Well, actually, you don't hear any of that because we cut the sneezes out when we're editing. But take my word for it, people definitely sneeze in here, and when they they do, I've got a box of Kleenex on the table right in front of them so they can use one and get right back to business. And here's what Kleenex means to me, a tissue that will hold up. We've all used those other tissues that you blow holes right through. When I see Kleenex, I know that tissue is up for the job. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Hey, if you don't know about this, there's a bonus episode for Full Marin subscribers every Friday, hosted by Brendan, Brendan McDonald, uh, the producer of this show, and our friend Chris Lopresto, uh, and it's every Friday. And last week, they had on film critic Matt Singer to talk about his new book, Opposable Thumbs, How Siskel and Ebert Changed Movies Forever. You never heard the phrase, you make a good point on Siskel and Ebert, even when both of them often did make good points. They refused to concede that at any point, anyone but them made a good point. Right. In all the years of the show, I think there's one example of Gene changing his mind on the air for a movie, the John Travolta action movie, Broken Arrow. You know, right. he, he gave it like a very mild, positive review. Roger rebuts and says, yeah, I think pretty much what you said is true, except I don't think it's very good. And, you know, this was even worse than you said. And I didn't really care for this. And Gene goes like, you know what? I've never done this. And he never had and he never would again. He's like, I'm going to twist the thumb down. You're right. What am I praising here? It's not really that good. Thumbs down. It's so funny. Because I re reading it in in the book, it was like somebody writing about like the helmet catch in the Super Bowl. Like I was like, I remember when that happened. Like I, <laughs> I, I had like this vivid memory of the the graphic of the thumb being turned downward yes. on screen. Like I'm like <laughs> sitting there with my dad watching it. Like whoa, did you see what just happened? It was it was, it was like, it was almost as if a Hulk Hogan had just picked up Andre the Giant, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> to get the Friday show every week, plus my bonus episodes every Tuesday, as well as every episode of WTF ad-free, subscribe to The Full Marin. Just go to the link in the episode description or go to WTFpod.com and click on WTF Plus. All right? Okay. Here's some guitar from the archives. <laughs> Thank you. 
Monkey, La Fonda, cat angels everywhere. (laughs) 